0: Welcome to Hot Plate, a post-foodie podcast. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, coming to you from the isolation of our homes. Prohibition and racism with Christine Sismondo. Growing up north and sexy vegetables. Chashna, how are you doing today?
1: Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. This is the sunshine helps, even though it's hot and hard to handle uh sunshine helps a lot so this is pretty it's pretty good over here man how are you
0: yeah i still don't like it um, <laughs> but that's okay uh i will survive nice. and i will find a lake to jump in at some point oh and that sounds so be good
1: better. it's gonna be glorious when that happens
0: i'm also super excited though because we have a guest in today christine Cismondo. And she is a Toronto-based writer and speaker who specializes in wine, spirits, and their history. She's the author of America Walks Into a Bar. Have you read that?
1: I haven't read it. I've read excerpts. I have not read the whole thing.
0: It's pretty awesome. It's a history of bars as political spaces. Uh, She also wrote the script for Wondery Media's American History Tellers six-part prohibition series. Yes. Which I'm very excited about. And she co-wrote, with Stephen Beaumont, the book Canadian Spirits, which is really an essential guide for anyone interested in learning more about Canada's many distilleries. Uh, So welcome, Christine.
2: Thank you for having me. This is great. Hi, guys.
0: Hello. Hello. Welcome. It's lovely to have you. So I'm particularly excited to have you in on this topic, Christine, because I know you've done a lot of work on Prohibition, and it's an era that really fascinates me. We talk about Prohibition so simply, like, It's a silly idea that some people had that maybe we should ban alcohol and then they figured out it was a mistake and that was the end of that. But the more I learn about prohibition, the more I see these different layers to it.
2: Yeah, it's a really complex topic that um, you're right, is just often the story that's told about it is kind of in some ways, I think, a confirmation bias sort of thing, like unintended consequences Mm. or forbidden fruit or those sorts of things that people like to play around when actually it's a way more complicated story than that.
0: So we've brought you in um, to talk about two articles that you wrote for Maclean's. What prohibition teaches us about race relations in the U.S. and how the Anti-Saloon League, responsible for prohibition, shaped modern racist policing. Uh, Christine, because I've I've been to a number of talks and uh, and various mm-hmm. presentations on prohibition, and it this topic is always touched on, usually in the context of them showing an image like a it's usually a cartoon from a newspaper or you know, some kind of political propaganda around prohibition and they put it up and then the speaker can't get around the fact that looking at it, there's clearly some mm. racist undertones. So they'll just sort of allude to that, apologize and move on. So uh, it was just really great for me as well to read a full piece on this topic. And I was wondering, how did you decide to write these articles?
2: um so uh, a lot of it kind of is sort of unfinished business from writing about the history of bars you only have you know i was writing a, a long history about the bars so you only have a a short chapter to work on for prohibition but also I didn't really understand it at that time that was almost 10 years ago or 10 years ago when I was actually writing it and I don't think I understood it as well at the time in terms of how everything kind of connected together I had some sort of thoughts about it I knew that the anti-saloon league who were the main people who used to put out all the propaganda had ties to the KKK but um you know after I wrote my book i did a PhD and in history, and that really um, was beneficial for me in terms of understanding how things kind of work together in order to um, bring about these systemic problems that we have and oppression. And I think now it's sort of clicked even more fully than it was before.
0: I guess what was really interesting for me to see in these articles was, I guess for lack of a better term, how accepted this behavior mm-hmm. seemed to be the behavior being the basically confounding xenophobia with morality. Because the, the other, of course, the visual for prohibition is the, the roaring 20s, everyone having fun and these really cool looking speakeasies. And you did mention in the article that, you know, drinking wasn't illegal. It's just all the other stuff was. And it almost seems more deliberate and, and systematic in in its intention, in terms of you know targeting uh, people who were at an economic disadvantage in in creating these laws, do you feel like it was maybe more tolerated
2: back then? I co- I completely think so. I mean, so mm. from, from with my book, one of the things that I argued was that it was never about getting rid of alcohol in the first place. It was about getting rid of saloons and taverns, which right. were um were. Places where people could meet and discuss politics or places where labor unions could meet and, you know, discuss the conditions at their workplace um, and a number of other. And it was, you know, widely known to be a place where people who lived in tiny little apartments when they first uh, came to United States and Canada as well, if you lived in a tenement, the only kind of social life you might be able to have was that bar downstairs or down the street. Mm -hmm. And so when when you put the clamp down on the taverns and the saloons, what you're really doing is putting the clamp down on A lot of people who don't have a lot of alternatives um, for socializing because there are no community centers back then or very few, you know, that we didn't really have as many third places as we do now at the time. So I felt that it was a very deliberate way to get rid of organizing places for, um, you know, it's not just ethnic minorities we're talking about here, but a number of different organizations. You know, one thing I didn't get into in the article is the KKK was also virulently anti-labor. And so, Right. right, because that's where, you know, you don't want these people talking to each other because they might get something done. Right.
1: Yes. Yes.
2: So what we were talking about earlier was we were talking about how, um, alcohol was still legal for people to drink. So there's this great, you know, example that everybody laughs about this because it's such a white story and everybody thinks about this, you know, JP Morgan, I think it was, he, he He put away like 10,000 bottles of champagne or something like that just to get him through prohibition. And a lot of really wealthy (laughs) people put these like big stocks of alcohol away. And in our kind of bon vivant life, we think, oh, that's wonderful. You know, they were, you know, doing this thing to evade this unjust law. But of course, you know, if. It takes a really a fairly advantaged person to be able to put away any alcohol, right. um, and uh, and then um, you wind up then. With, and then not everybody could have put op- away all that much um, alcohol. And some people were then going to have to start purchasing it. And this really comes out, like, especially about two or three years after you get more and more bootleggers and um, people bringing alcohol in. And alcohol was actually quite expensive. People didn't drink more during Prohibition than they did before because most people couldn't afford to. You know, prices went up like sixfold for things. Um, oh, Okay. But there were still some people who could afford to do it, and for them, the risks were really low, because they had the money, and they went and they bought the bottle, and they went home, and they drank it at home, or they rented a hotel, and they drank it in the hotel. But for the people who actually were doing the supplying of the alcohol, the risks were far, far higher, um, because now you could be arrested for being a bootlegger, um, you could lose your establishment, you could go to jail, um, and all of those things. And the, the, the part that makes it most dangerous is the fact that the people who were doing so much of the running speakeasies and bringing in illegal alcohol were almost all ethnic minorities. And right. so okay. you see this tremendous um, targeting of um Uh, Black people, Jewish people, Italians, Catholics, really Catholics, period, across the board, um, who were considered sort of like already guilty, always, of being, you know, purveyors of illegal liquor.
0: It just sounds like terrifying times, because you describe in your article this, that the ASL and the KKK somehow were able to take the law into their own hands i guess for lack of a better term and they were essentially you know just burning down speakeasies you talk about tarring and feathering people which is just freaky and it just seems like a terrifying times and b you know where where was the police where you know where it seems i guess they were too busy trying to sort out the mess that prohibition was already
2: well i mean there 's a wide range of answers to this, but i mean mm. there there was like white mob violence by kKK vigilantes like all throughout, especially in the Midwest. It was absolutely rampant because there were and then there was accusations that some police were not going to enforce it, but there were other police who were enforcing it, and you know were using it as a pretext for um, mass incarceration and um, and, uh, you know, sort of unfair numbers of ethnic minorities being going going to prison and paying fines and paying penalties um, for this activity that everybody was taking part in. Or, well, not everybody, as I said, it was expensive, but, you know, a large segment of the population was taking part in this illegal alcohol scheme. But there were only um, but, you know, largely <laughs> affluent white people didn't pay any penalty for it.
0: The other thing that you mentioned in the article, and that I absolutely want to touch on, because this is something that I've that I've heard here and there about prohibition, uh, and I've always wondered if it was true. I'm guessing it is, since you wrote it down. But this uh, this poisoning program that yeah. the the government have you heard about this, Joshna? No,
1: no. So,
0: well, I'll let Christine explain. This is something okay. that I've heard about here and there, but I I couldn't believe was true. But I'm I'm assuming it is. Sadly
2: yeah this this is insane this is the the most crazy sort of story out of prohibition well maybe not the most but i uh, but one of them um and the the thing is that there was a a republican government um controlling everything at the time, and they had campaigned you know as they do now on a very kind of law and order and um you know no handouts and things along those lines sort of um uh, platform. And so the idea, and, and some of that is owing to the Anti-Saloon League, who were really, much like the NRA, a very, very powerful lobby group. And so mm. the, um, so the idea was, um, that, if people if there were bootleggers in general tend to be people who made illegal alcohol as opposed to but what they were using was this industrial alcohol so you still needed alcohol to be produced for various products like plastics and you know cleansers and things along those lines so some distillers got licenses to make industrial alcohol but um, in order to make it um, impossible for bootleggers to Um, to uh, take it and turn it into something that people could drink, they were asked to put a small amount of poison in. And as um, the years went by and bootlegging became Mm. more and more popular, Um, in about, I think it's 1926, they upped the poisons and they said you have to, you know, put all of these different poisons in it in order to produce your industrial alcohol. Well, that didn't stop anybody from trying to turn it into something palatable. People just masked it and people didn't even know what that they were necessarily doing it on. Purpose. It was the government that was poisoning the alcohol. It was the people who were trying to get around it. And then when the problems started, the, the horrible thing is that the government didn't put the brakes on and say, well, maybe we should stop that. The government's, you know, just doubled down on it consistently. And all throughout the 1920s, instead of um, saying, oh, this isn't working very well, they kept saying, people well, people are dying. Yeah. They kept saying, well, right. well, put more poison in or make this, this prison sentences longer or make this The fines bigger and hire more police.
0: Can you believe that we're just poisoning people?
1: It's extraordinary. This like from a, from a, like, from a, like a public health perspective, it is wild. Right. Um, It is completely
2: wild. Yeah. And it's like an estimated 10,000 people, you know, who, who. My God. Yeah, it's an astonishing number of people. And and the idea was, well, you know, this will provide some kind of a, an incentive for people not to do it. And the rationale, if you can understand this sort of like absolutely over-the-top, you know, religious um, devotion to get getting rid of alcohol, was mm-hmm. that it was worth a few lives in order to get alcohol eradicated
1: completely. Right, that this, these few lives were the cost of doing business to rid this larger evil from the world.
2: Exactly. Exactly, exactly, right.
1: yeah. Um, okay, Christine, one of the things that I'm super interested in is there are such obvious parallels between this bit of history that you are outlining for us and the very the more modern uh, experience around um, incarceration and particularly around things like cannabis uh, and in the U.S., the crack of a racial divide between the people who consume the stuff versus the people who supply this stuff, and where the law falls, uh, it feels like that, that's a, an unfortunately really long standing tradition.
2: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think it's the exact same scenario. And I think that um, there's almost no difference between the prohibition on alcohol and the prohibition on marijuana, except for the details about how things are made and grown. But in terms of the repercussions on society, I'd say it's the identical story. And, and you know, I mean, I don't think that it was an accidental thing. You know, the there's, you know, a lot of stuff um, about the war on drugs being very much about promoting sort of mass incarceration and um, but it's not actually my field I've done way less research on sure, um, sure sure on drugs that aren't alcohol than I have on on the alcoholic drug
0: so basically we haven't learned anything. <laughs>
2: Oh, that's
1: the sad truth there. Is it really true, huh?
2: Well, you know, the one thing, though, that is if you're a historian, you have to live with this, you know, feeling like, oh, well, nothing will ever change because if Mm -hmm. you look back, you'll see nothing ever has changed, really, Mm. except that things change marginally from my point of view. And, um, you know, what happened at the end of Prohibition? I mean, people really in America were so fed up and they had, you know, realized what problems that had caused. And then if you throw in a, a depression as well, um, people really got out to the polls and they really made change in 1930, in the 1932 election by getting rid of the Republicans completely, having the House, the Senate and the the um, main office and the FDR, who was, you know, in no ways a, a like he's still a totally problematic character you know he put in so much of what social safety network the united states has right now Mm -hmm. um and he did make some changes that made things better in the united states and a lot of that grew out of frustration with you know, people worried about their kids getting poisoned, um, about, you know, the people being, um, you know, tired of the KKK raids on towns, um, you know, and the various problems that this law was causing.
1: The notion of the KKK having this much uh, grassroots control is new to me as well, right? I I, I had no sense of their, of the Klan's history in sort of policing or managing um people's behavior on the ground like that that's that's very new to me
2: yeah and and they were extremely powerful in that era you know things started um becoming the KKK started gaining a lot of power in about oh i don't know like the maybe 1915 they became more and more popular but throughout the 1920s they you know absolutely increased their ranks massively in Canada as well not just in the United mm-hmm. States and um uh, and they were uh, also, I think that they were very much responsible for some of the anti-immigration laws that came up around that time as well, because um, most of North America closed itself off to immigrants in that era. And I I think the KKK who were America firsters, really, you know, that's, that was one of their slogans. Um, You know, the Anti-Saloon League put a lot of these politicians in office because they funded their campaigns. And and there was a a horribly dirty organization and they would work with anybody and they would stop at nothing to get their saloons closed and to get prohibition enacted. And they would um, blackmail politicians and they would, you know, uh, pressure people. The the system of politics that they invented is called pressure politics. And it was because they bullied politicians into doing things. And another thing that they did that I think is fascinating for today's world is they amplified the the dry voices like this is leading up to prohibition. They made it look like there were a ton of people who were in favor of prohibition far more than really were. And the way they did that was sort of dirty tricks by making the numbers look bigger through media, you know, which is what you those are bots and trolls on Twitter. It's the exact same thing system that they've got, they had going. It's just that they did it with telegrams.
0: Uh, There was something that I learned from your article that I was really happy to read about, Mm -hmm. and that I was not aware of, you know, the idea that women were behind uh, prohibition, which you've, you've dispelled a little bit already in this article, but women were definitely involved. And I Uh, I have now learned that there was, you know, there were other motivations for women to be involved, namely perhaps getting the vote because they promised to support the, uh, the ASL if they did get the vote. But right. I was just really happy to read that by the 30s, women turned around the women's groups and they were now against, fighting again.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for the early temperance activists, although a lot of them were horribly racist as well. Um, the, the women, you know, many of them were trying to protect themselves from spousal abuse and it was linked to alcohol and they were trying to also protect their children from starvation, which was also linked to alcohol because people did drink a, a tremendous amount of alcohol in the middle of the 19th century, and it was a very dangerous and volatile situation. And they did a wonderful job about getting their issue um, out into the forefront and to changing the cultural um, mm-hmm. landscape and getting people to think about uh, it. And it would not have happened without them. But the actual mechanics for getting prohibition through was all, was there were no women involved in it, really. It was all men-dominated Through the Anti-Saloon League, largely, you know, I mean, women might have been a voice here and there, but they weren't really um, politically powerful enough in order to do such a massive legislative change. So, um, uh, I mean, they didn't even have the vote. Right. So they had zero political power, essentially. Um, so I think they had less to do with pr- bringing about prohibition than it's often made out to be. And people often also paint them as, you know, sort of like busybodies, do-gooders who are trying to like scold people for having a little fun. And, and that's just not the reality of what happened. But yes, in terms of- Well, those routine- are the
0: images we see, right? You know, lips that touch alcohol will never touch mine or whatever, with all those mm. young women with the- have you seen those images, Jeff? Yeah, I think I some have. of yeah, them are it's a very- Oh, you think? Well, I think there's one that I'm getting happier and happier to learn that the connection isn't as strong as I thought it was.
2: Yeah, I mean, there were some people like that. There's a, you know, very famously Carrie Nation who smashed the bars and things like that. And they—they were—they the, these things existed. I just mean, in terms of actually sort of getting like a constitutional amendment on the floor, that was you know there there was other interests in there, and a lot of them were people who wanted to have workplaces where they didn't have hungover or drunk people, um, you know, who wanted to squash labor unions. Like a lot of this came from big money as well, and um, and that's uh, sort of how prohibition became a reality as opposed to sort of a nice idea from you know women organizing. In upstate New York and Ohio, but then, um, but in reality, I do think they had a lot to do with repealing it. And there was a a several groups, but one of the most famous is um, one a woman named Pauline Sabin. She had like um, I'm going to forget the whole full acronym and what it was, but she. It was basically they, she and a lot of other Republican women decided that this was um, an intolerable situation and that their kids were learning terrible lessons and were in danger and it was time to change it. And they had these big road rallies where they drove around and like, you know, showed their signs and tried to get people on board. And she had a lot to do with them. Um, FDR's election, and of course, um, the NAACP uh, started to try to get people out um, to to the polls um, in order to. to get Black Americans to stop supporting the Republican Party, which they traditionally had, and to realize that they were no longer protecting their interests and to start voting Democratic. So those were two very powerful movements um, right, leading up to 1932.
1: Christina, I have to say, one of the things that is perhaps... Perhaps not intended by uh, these pieces that you've written. But one of the things that I've really gleaned, and even just from our conversation now, is in this moment that we are all in, we feel like we have never seen this before. This is so wild. It's also crazy. It's also new. But what I've really learned uh, by reading your pieces and just considering this myself is that we are just in our current wave Mm -hmm. of many, many ways. Like, this is, we have done this before as humans.
2: That's, I. that's how exactly what I think as well. You know, I think it's a very similar period. And honestly, I could spend like the whole rest of my career just reading about and writing about the 1920s, because it's such a fascinating mm. era, uh, like Morella was saying, but, um, but I think that uh, um, it's hopeful in a way, right, to know that this yes. is the, the craziest thing that's ever happened, that very similar crazy periods, we've been through them before, and we did manage to get out of them and make better times. And that's what I like to take out of things like this
0: just speaking to you now, I'm realizing that, you know, there's so much more to learn about this. Can we, I think we could say surreal period. I mean, it's just hard to fathom on so many levels and, uh, anyone who is intrigued by, like me is intrigued by prohibition. I would definitely point you to this. It's free. It's so wandering media's American history tellers. Yeah. Six part prohibition series. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us, Christine. This has been fantastic. Thank,
2: thank you. Thank
1: you for this work and for that effort. Thanks so much.
2: Oh, thanks. I hope to see you guys again soon.
1: All right, Mirella, I am very excited to bring you a good news story. Uh, that is definitely yes. what we need right now. Uh, I've got this wonderful story about a greenhouse in the north, and we're talking. Inuvik, so way up north in the Arctic, essentially, right? Which is perhaps the most important piece to consider from a listener perspective is that we are above the tree line, right? (laughs) And then to remember that that is such a thing and that uh, the further north you go on latitude, uh, there comes a point where just nothing grows and it's just about rock and ice and snow in the winter, right? Um, But there is this wonderful community. Uh, of folks, uh, indigenous communities, obviously, um, but they have, uh, there's a greenhouse that they have that has become the really beautiful co- like community food hub that a greenhouse can be, uh, right? And they have these glorious stories of kids racing over to see how their kale plants are doing uh, and people with lovely stories about a summer full of cucumber salads, Um, But what is fascinating is that this having the greenhouse in the community then gave them the opportunity to pivot, to maximize production, to address the food insecurity that came with um, the pandemic. Uh, And to me, this is just there's nothing but great news about this whole story.
0: And what I thought was especially interesting about how it happened is that it, it, it? was due to the need for resourcefulness, right? Because previously, this greenhouse, ninety percent of the plots belonged to different families who would right. all come in and grow their own stuff. And then, with the COVID regulations, suddenly all these people could no longer come to the That's greenhouse. It. That's it. So they had to find some way to pivot to a model where only a f- few people were using all of the all of the earth in the the greenhouse. And they came up with what I agree with you is a fantastic idea, which is to turn it into a farm. And uh, I think they managed to get some subsidies and now they're doing uh, boxes of yes uh, subsidized boxes of groceries for these uh, families, many of whom are, are struggling to get groceries. That's it,
1: right? We know that just generally speaking in pre-pandemic times, um, food insecurity in the North is like crisis level as it mm-hmm. is, right? Uh, and so to see... That we have a solution that is in fact sustainable it is anchored in grassroots communities uh it just makes such sense i was jealous when i saw a photo of the carton of eggs that's like something adorable like arctic chicken eggs or arctic Mm -hmm. eggs i was like ah i love that i love that it makes so much sense um but then there's this other beautiful piece around the community uh that i thought was even more beautiful and obviously i love any story that talks about the transformative power of food Mm-hmm. But this old hockey rink, uh, the the greenhouse is sort of retrofitted into what was an old hockey rink, right? And they talk about the puck dents in the sides of the walls, yes. right, from that. But that that hockey rink was a remnant from a campus that was a residential school at one point, right? And that part of the challenge that they had when they both both the hockey rink and the greenhouse in its in its sort of first. Uh, incarnation was that that space held a lot, that physical place held a lot of negative connotation for people. Obviously, Yeah. People didn't want to
0: go near it. They didn't
1: want to go physically near that. Right. Uh, yeah. And the fact that they have managed to really sort of change the history, right. To, to sort of pull away from that, that oppressive sort of torturous, horrible context of a residential school to a place that actually literally feeds and nourishes the community.
0: It's fantastic. And I loved that in the article, they're extremely hopeful. And, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but it makes sense that if you have 24 hours of sunlight for uh, a number of months during the year, that's going to grow some, like, if you can shelter those crops, they're going to, it's going to be pretty tasty. That's a lot of sunlight.
1: Imagine all the ripening of the tomatoes and the berries and all those things.
0: Yeah. Uh, So, you know, this, I mean, wouldn't it be great if this could be amplified and there were more, uh, local initiatives to grow fresh food out there because from it, everything that i've seen there was a yeah. there was a photo in the article about a 60 dollar watermelon I know, I know you know the prices are, are not approachable and uh i don't know this it, it seems like a really exciting initiative all around yeah, and yeah, it's it's, sure.
1: it's one of the first times we've heard real success coming from these. I've heard about them before, but never oh, yeah? with, with this volume of success. When they talk about the yield and what their harvest is like and the actual move, the impact that they're able to make on food security or food insecurity, I would say, in the community, uh, this really appears to be working. And that's... Feels wonderful. I have a, I have a mouse on a wheel. Quietly worried about northern food security uh, because it is such a disaster for so many uh, of our of our fellow you know our fellow Canadians and our neighbors uh, and Indigenous people. Uh, and this is ex- very very exciting.
0: Josh, you now the the story I'm bringing I would say is not so much feel good as just plain silly yeah I, Yeah. I, I had to share it and uh to our listeners i highly encourage you to pop into our show notes uh, or onto our, our website and follow the link so you can see these images that we're talking about but i came across these photos of radishes in seductive poses oh my god
1: they're so and-
0: good I mean, I've seen a lot of, you know, hey, this piece of fruit looks like a bum kind of photos. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but these are next level. You know, these, these are, are voluptuous. Level, They're, yeah. They've got their legs positioned uh, naturally, you mm-hmm. know, in very seductive poses. They're kind of voluptuous. They're coy. Uh, and they have this odd androgynous Way they do, they or... do, because there's
1: no, there's no heads. It's just bodies as it would be. And yeah. It's not obvious necessarily. Everybody has sort of like full hips and, uh, and, and amplifies. <laughs> uh, and they look so inviting, right? They, they really, really do. do, right? And because there's like a taper at the bottom where the radish finishes off, it all, it all feels very uh, corporeal, I think is perhaps the way to say it, right? Very much like uh, a body
0: i spent a lot of time looking at these i just found them delightful uh,
1: i think they're super super cute and i have seen when you've spent any time uh on a garden or on a farm that nature offers this hilarity up a lot right little stuff looking like strawberries looking like little bums and tomatoes and eggplants with random protrusions and things like that mm. which are always a bit uh suggestive but when Uh, When we were in the thinking about this, I went and did some searching online to see about these other examples that I remember from, you know, from other farm connections. And hilariously, one of the things, one of the hits that I came up with is a piece from the BBC. And I feel like it's important to mention that it is the BBC, uh, an article talking about how seductive naming of vegetables will make them more appealing and that people would be more inclined to consume them if you didn't just call them carrots, but if you called them, what, twisted citrus glazed carrots.
2: Ooh,
0: just
1: give them that little... That's exactly mm. it. It made me laugh a lot. Um, And to be honest, I think we could have more seductive language than carrots with sugar-free citrus dressing.
0: Even if you just go into like crispy or, you know, just get into the texture. Totally. uh, Uh.
1: But these two ideas together... Mm-hmm. really suggest a sort of like PR campaign on behalf of vegetables. Yes. Right? To, to, to close Which the needed. gap. Yeah, to close the gap for people, right? We give them a new name so you get a your interest, right? And your brain is peaked more. But then if you make them look a little saucy and sexy and very inviting, uh, those two things could very well, they'll pre- literally bring people to the table.
0: Hopefully they will. Yeah, I was reading that piece uh, on the BBC, and I, I did find it particularly interesting because they they tried four things, right, just on yep. the menu. They tried just a basic description, mm-hmm. then they tried like a, a, a what they called a healthy restrictive. That's right. Description. So this does not have these, you know, fat or does yep. not have all these horrible things. Uh, then a healthy positive message. So for example, you know, it contains a vitamin C or whatnot, and then they just went with the you know, the, the, what they call the indulgent. And it was fascinating for me to see that the indulgent had 25% more people order off the menu with the indulgent description than just the plain, these are carrots description. Mm -hmm. And the two health messages, both positive and negative had fewer people order it than just plain carrots. So that tells me that the approach we've been taking so far, which really is to, emphasize, you know, you have to eat your vegetables. They're good for you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's maybe not the way to go. Maybe not at just all, with these sort of like sexy, wagging finger. Sexy radishes. If you're enjoying our podcast, please support us at patreon.com slash hotplatepod. Hotplate is part of the Frequency Podcast Network. Please consider leaving us a rating or review. It helps others find us. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at hotplatepod. Follow me at virology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Original music by Dave Bell. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. Thanks for listening.